Thanks, Wilson. Again, good morning. Take your Bible to the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12. The message is entitled, Will You? The pastor has been preaching through uh, Hebrews and uh, last week began to uh, began in chapter 11 there and over the coming weeks, I assume that's the chapter of faith by the way, over the coming weeks I assume he's going to delve into some of those individuals that are listed there. Um, that demonstrated faith. But if we're not careful, uh, those people will seem untouchable to us. They'll seem like, I could never be like that. This message is about God's will and if we're not careful, we can look at those people and say, of course they live by faith. Of course they're in the chapter of faith Of course they live by faith. They're in the Bible. To that I would say they weren't. When they demonstrated faith in God, they weren't in in the Bible. They were just living their lives, demonstrating faith in God as he expects us who are believers to also demonstrate faith. And we can feel intimidated uh, by those ones. Of course, Abraham demonstrated faith in God. He was Abraham. But we know him as the Abraham that demonstrated faith in God. He wasn't born that way. He had to choose to demonstrate faith in what God was asking of him. That was God's will for his life. And you and I also need to demonstrate faith in God in our lives. Not in the same way Abraham did. None of those people in that chapter that I assume Pastor will preach on, so we're not going to go there this morning. None of those people demonstrated faith in God in the same way. They're all different. But that was what God expected of them as individuals. And we're going to look at the will of God this morning. We're here in Romans chapter 12 and uh, we'll begin here. And this is a a wonderful passage, a special passage. Um, So we need to be careful to stay on on topic because there's much that can be preached from from this uh, passage. But we're here to see what it has to say about the will of God. Paul wrote 14 of the New Testament books. Five of those, chapter 1, verse 1, begin by telling us that he's writing those letters under God's direction by the will of God. Each of those in the faith chapter that we've just alluded to, Hebrews chapter 11, had to live by faith. But... Is living by faith in the will of God, is that just a Bible thing or is that something for you and I? Let's read Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. 
I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The teenagers will tell you that I always caution them when we come to a passage that is familiar to us. We need to remind ourselves that we still don't know all that is in that passage. This is a familiar verse or two verses to many of you here this morning. And yet, if we're not careful, we we miss it because we say, yeah, I know that verse. I've memorised it years ago and I could still quote it now that we've read it together. Um, Familiar verses are dangerous verses because they're familiar. Let's pray and then we'll look at what this verse says about the will of God. Father, we love you. I pray that you'd bless our time in your word. Give clarity of thought to each of us here that we would understand what your word has to say for us this morning. Challenge us, Lord. Rebuke us if necessary. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would be honoured and glorified. Lord, we ask your blessing to be upon Pastor Shavoni as he ministers there at Lumia Baptist Church this morning. Use uh, him to be a blessing as he ministers a challenge there likewise, we pray. Bless them, uh, but may you be honoured and glorified as they celebrate 50 years of your goodness as a church. We ask your blessing upon our time in your word now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 2 in particular here finishes with the phrase, the will of God. And it it tells us there, if you follow along in verse 2, it says, don't be like those that you live amongst. Don't be conformed to the unsaved around you. Instead, you need to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That's by thinking on the Word of God. We need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, we will know the will of God. The will of God is something that you can know for you, according to this passage. If you choose not to be like those that you live amongst, but you choose to let the Word of God work over in your heart and in your mind and change you, and when you allow that to happen, you can know what God's will is for you. And you see how God's Word is described there in verse 2? It's described as being good and acceptable and perfect. There aren't many things in life that if we're told they're good, acceptable and perfect, that we'll say, it's alright, I'll go without that. But I'm concerned that for many Christians, they are not concerned what the will of God for them is. As things happen in in our lives, we just go with the flow rather than asking God, is this from you? Do you want me to do this, Lord? 
Should I take this job? Should I resign this job? Should I speak to that person? Should I stay away from that person? All sorts of things that we could and should be asking God and yet we don't very often. And yet the will of God is good and perfect and acceptable. That's what the Bible says. You think about a young lady choosing a wedding dress. From my understanding, it would be a tough decision because they're all white. So there's nothing there, colour-wise, that rules one out from another. Right? But when she does find the one that is good, acceptable and perfect, does she keep looking for others? Because there might be others that are also good and perfect and acceptable. Now, if the price is right and the cut is right and the styling is right and all of that other is good and acceptable and perfect, that's the one. You don't go, that one's too good for me. That one's too perfect. That's too acceptable. I'm going to get that other one that was $1,000 more or it didn't look quite right on me or, or whatever. No, we go for or not we, she goes for that one that is good and perfect and acceptable. And there's so many things in our lives that when we're confronted by something with that, that description, we take it without a moment's thought and yet not the will of God. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect for you and yet is that your concern, that you know what that is? The Bible says here in verse 2 that if you're willing to not be like those around you but to let God's word transform you, you can know what the will of God is. And that's our first point. God has a will for you. It's not just Abraham and Noah and Sarah and all those ones that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter It's for you as well. God has a will for you. If you come with me to Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to look at a number of passages this morning, a number of verses that touch on the will of God. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us of a man by the name of Epaphras who was in prison with Paul during his first imprisonment. We don't know whether he was just with him uh, to keep him company or whether he was also imprisoned. Um, And yet uh, here Paul tells us of Epaphras. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12 Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers that ye may 
stand perfect and complete in the will of God. In the will of God. He was praying for these ones. Epaphras was from that church in in Colossae. But he was with Paul at this time. And his prayer for them was that they would be in the will of God. You don't pray for things that are impossible. We might pray for things that are hard. We might pray for things that are, uh, would be um, difficult or challenging to, to bring to pass. But things that are, are impossible, we don't pray for those. God has a will for you. And God had a will for those individuals that Epaphras knew in the church of uh, Colossae and that's why he was praying for them that they would be in the will of God. Things that are difficult, we pray for. Things that um, would be challenging, we pray for. But we don't pray for the impossible. But God has a will for you. We don't pray that one day we'd be able to uh, soar off a cliff and fly, that that would be impossible. We don't waste our time praying for things like that. Epaphras was praying that they would be in God's will because God had a will for them and God has a will for you. Go back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 5. Servants or employees, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Here workers are encouraged not to be like the rest of the workers. When the boss isn't looking, keep working. Don't, don't be like the others that, that are, are, are working with eye service. When he's looking, they're working. When he's not looking, they're hoping not to get caught not working. It's your job to serve, it says here in verse 6. And you should serve because you're the servant of Christ, Christian. But it says we should do that. We're doing that from the will of God. It's God's will that, that this is our employment and that we give our boss a fair day's work. They wouldn't be telling us here to to work from this mindset that this is the will of God unless God had a will for us. God has a will for you. God has a will for me. But we need to stop seeing God's will as some sort of a hope that He has. That that it's some sort of a desire that hopefully one day when they've grown up, they'll see my will as important. It shouldn't be seen as an option. God has a will for you. 
When Sir Robert Louis Stevenson died, he left in his will his birthday, November the 13th, to a friend of his who had always found celebrating their birthday on Christmas Day to be less than satisfying because everybody else seemed a bit distracted and not able to focus uh, satisfactorily on the fact that it was their birthday. And so he left them November the 13th for their birthday. When Shakespeare died, he bequeathed to his wife Susanna his second best bed. That's his terminology. And everything else to his eldest daughter. By contrast, poet uh, Henrik Hein willed everything he had to his wife. But before you think he's perhaps nicer than, than um, Shakespeare, he willed everything to his wife on the condition that she remarried. And we think, okay, that, that's nice, he's thinking of his wife. But he said, so that at least one man will mourn my passing. A will is a legal document. A will is a, a thing that states what is going to happen with your toys when you die. Who gets them? Where do they go? And it's a legal thing. Sometimes they're contested things, but when you're the boss, like Frank Sinatra, you think ahead. He stated in his will that anyone that contests his will would automatically be disinherited. A will is a legal document that says after your passing what's going to happen with what you leave behind because you don't take anything with you. It all stays. A will. It's why when a relative dies, Everyone takes seriously what they said. Aunt Gertrude said that the Babushka doll collection should be Luke's, and so it's Luke's. Jan is to have the Monet painting in, in the spare bedroom, uh, not painting, sorry, uh, print, that, that's a bit faded. Uh, it's in the spare bedroom. Nobody wanted it anyway, uh, but that's Jan's. And we take seriously what they've said. Some of us might be dis disappointed that everything else went to charity, that we didn't get $5 or anything. But, you know, that's what they wanted and we respect that, right? Because it's their will. We respect it. But when it comes to the will of God, why do we see it as an option? Why do we see it that God has some hope that one day I would live this way. No, this is the will of God for you. And it's good, and it's perfect, and it's acceptable. And it shouldn't be seen as an option. Why do we see it as an option? 
the will of God is not to be contested. But do you contest it? Do you dispute with God as to what his will for you is? Or do you accept it? The will of God is not a suggestion. He has a will for you. And who in their right mind would, if we spelled it out, contest the last will and testament of God? No one in their right mind would do that. And yet, we do. Firstly, God has a will for you. And we need to stop seeing it as an option. Secondly, God's will should be respected. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. God's will should be respected. 1 Peter chapter 4, please. How should God's will be respected? Well, we need to see it as something that needs to be done. It's not a suggestion. It's something that needs to be honoured. 1 Peter chapter 4. Two times other than this, Peter speaks about the will of God in, in 1 Peter as well. Just in those five chapters, he speaks about it three times. Twice, he talks about the possibility of suffering being a part of his will for you or for me. We need to live, be willing to live differently. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, We just chose to live our own way. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. See, here it's talking about in in the past we, we might have lived however we wanted. Whoa these Christians had. They'd lived according to the will of the the Gentiles, according to the will of the unsaved. And he's making the point that that ought not to be the way the Christian lives. God's will is that we live differently. Will you? Christian, will you choose to live differently? Or do you want to live according to the the will of the Gentiles, as it's said here? Uh, Just however you want to live. God has a will for you. But are you going to contest it or are you going to accept it? It says not in lasciviousness, shameful excess, lust that is has no check to it. Not in revelry, just partying till late, living however we want. 
but instead according to, as it says there in verse 2, but to the will of God. You're going to have to live differently if you're going to respect God's will for your life. You need to live differently to those that are around you. But are you going to respect God's will or are you going to contest it? In 2007, there was a, the, the, the death of, of a couple established the Elmsley Charitable Fund and it left $4 billion to this fund. The fund was set up to look after their dogs. $4 billion to look after their dogs for the rest of their life. Now that will was contested successfully. Amen. On top of that $4 billion, there were two particularly favourite dogs that they left $12 million to, but I don't know whether that was also contested or not. But that was contested because it was deemed that the couple were not of sound mind, as I think we would all agree. But a will isn't just overturned because somebody doesn't like what the will says. It's overturned when somebody is not of sound mind or it can be proved that the somebody was influenced unduly by some other person or influence. But how about God's will for you? Are you contesting God's will? See, a legal will normally isn't overturned. It's accepted in in good faith and yet God's will for our life, it's God. Why would we question His will for us? Why would we try and renegotiate it? Why would we try and overturn it? And yet so often we say, God, I can't do that. I can't live differently to those around me. I want to live in excess and revelry and, and so forth as, as this passage. I, I want to live like the Gentiles, as verse 3 refers to. I don't want to live the way your word says, which is fairly straight and narrow. But why would we accept great Auntie Gertrude's will and not accept God's? Why would we contest it? Because we're fleshly. We're selfish. It says there in verse 1, He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're struggling to do away with the flesh, then you haven't died. You want to live your life. You haven't died and said, God, I'm yours. You're still trying to be the master. God's will should be accepted. But will you? Will you accept it? And thirdly, 
God's will has expectations of me. Let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, please. First Timothy chapter two. <clears throat> God has a will, and we need to stop seeing it as some sort of a hope or desire, but his will. Secondly, God's will should be respected, and we need to stop contesting it. And thirdly, God's will has expectations of me, of you. And we need to stop looking for other options. 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, sorry, chapter 2 and verse 4, excuse me. I'm sorry. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, excuse me. Verse 3 ends talking about God our Saviour, verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God has an expectation of me. He desires, He indeed wills, that all men would be saved. Christ died on the cross not for those who would be Christians, but for everybody. Christ died for everybody. It is His will that everybody be saved. so that you and I will be without excuse. But the question is, have you been saved? Have you been saved? Will you be saved? It's a matter of ceasing to think that your own way is good enough. It's a matter of thinking differently, that that perhaps you aren't good enough to enter heaven on your own terms. Maybe it's God's way. That is the only way. He will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But why do I need to be saved? Why do I need to accept Christ? Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. One chief negotiator. One adjudicator between God and man. That lady that was released from prison in Iran this week. If there was nobody running between the government of Iran and Australia, the Australian government, it it wouldn't have happened. Somebody was doing the negotiation in the background to make it come to pass because there were differences of opinion. One wanted her released, The other didn't. They can't both have their way. And God says here, there is one mediator. There is one negotiator. There is one way to be reconciled between you and God. And it's the man, Christ Jesus. There is no other way. And if you don't, have that mediator. You can't see God. It is God's will for you that you be saved. Are you saved this morning? Have you been saved? Will you be saved? 
It's God's will for you that you be saved. We said his will is good and acceptable and perfect. So why would we push back at that? And yet some do. Turn back a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So God's will had expectations of me. One of those is that you would be saved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will has expectations and therefore I need to stop looking for other options. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honour. God expects clean living of the Christian. Verse 3 talks about sanctification in his will. God, uh, God then goes on to speak about it in verse 4, that we conduct ourselves with, in a way that demonstrates sanctification. Sanctification is just a big word for being, for, for being clean, for being purified. Christ's blood cleanses us from sin. It is God's will that all of us be saved save from our sin and have God's, have Christ's blood applied to our account. But that's a spiritual transaction. This verse isn't talking about that spiritual transaction that takes place when a person gets saved. When a person gets saved, they, Christ's blood cleanses them of sin and they are sanctified, purified, cleansed in God's sight. But how do we know this verse isn't talking about that? Because it goes on to say, verse 3, that you should abstain from fornication. That is not a spiritual activity. That is a fleshly, as in in our physical body activity. That is not something taking place in heaven. It's God's will that we be spiritually sanctified and practically sanctified. In our own time, in our lifetime, be sanctified that we be clean, that we live a clean life. The choices that we make determine, therefore, whether we are living a sanctified, clean life or not. Verse 3 says, abstain, hold off from fornication. We live in a society that sees it as acceptable that many young people in this city spent last night that way, in fornication. That, it, that it's normal to go out and party. It's normal to be at someone's house drinking until late. It's normal to be... That is not normal, parents. That is not normal behaviour. Normal to our society. God has an expectation of us that we live a clean life, a different life. 
But that fornication there in verse 3, that's just one example of sin that we need to be clean of. Sanctification isn't just not being a fornicator. Sanctification is talking about clean living. That's one example that isn't clean living. God expects us to be saved. Once we're saved, God expects us to live a clean life. And just over in chapter 5, verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. There's three ex- expectations God has of you and I in his will that we be saved, that we live clean and that we be thankful. What God allows in your life is in his control and you and I need to be thankful for it. What you and I bring into our life through our own stupidity, we need to accept and be thankful for his mercies when he restrains restrains the full implication of what should have happened from our own foolishness. We need to be thankful for his mercies. As Job said on a somewhat difficult day in his life, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He saw that it was God's will for him. He couldn't explain it. But it's God's will that we be thankful in closing, it's God's, God's will has expectations of me that I be saved, that I be sanctified, that I be thankful. God has a will for you. God has a will for me. And we need to stop seeing that will as some sort of a hope or longing that he has and it's something that he wants you to, to get on board with. God's will should be respected, secondly, and we need to stop contesting it. And God's will has expectations of you and I and we need to stop looking for other options. But how will you and I respond to God's will for you, for me? And parents, how will you respond to God's will for your children? If we accept that God has a will for each of us, then God has a will for each of your children too, parents. Are you going to determine that they'll be the same as every other kid that finishes school and they'll go on the same path? Or are you going to seek God with them about what is God's will for their life? Just like you should be seeking what is God's will for my life. Parents. Young adults, sanctification, clean living isn't an option. That is God's will for your life. It's what God has bequeathed to you. It's what he's willed to you. But will you honour that? How will all of us honour God's will for our life? By the choices that we make. By seeking his will. By seeking in the the things that we do and don't do to honour him with our lives to make sure that they are the things that he wants for us rather than that we want for us.
Let's bow for prayer.